0: Hi, my name is Carl Pino, uh, host of Genusian Economics. We explore economics and geopolitics in a rapidly changing uh, multipolar world. To learn more, please like uh, this video and subscribe to this channel.
1: We are told that your generation cares more than any other about one issue in particular, and that issue is climate change. We're told that many of you suffer from climate anxiety. What can we in Britain do? We can only do one thing. You know why? This country is responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions. Which means that if Britain was to sink into the sea right now, it would make absolutely no difference to the issue of climate change. You know why? Because the future of the climate is going to be decided in Asia and in Latin America by poor people. Who couldn't give a shit about saving the planet. You know why? Because they're poor. 120 million people in China do not have enough food. I don't mean that they don't get dessert. I mean they suffer from malnutrition. You're not going to get them to stay poor. Imagine you're Xi Jinping, the leader of China. And you know that the main thing you have to do to survive and to stay in power is to deliver the one thing that the people of China want prosperity economic growth where do you think climate change ranks on Xi Jinping's list of priorities now if you said to me that I had a choice either my son had a serious risk of starving or dying from a preventable disease in the next year or I could press a button and he would live but all I have to do is press this button. And for every day of my son's life, a giant plume of CO2 is going to get released into the atmosphere. Now, you're all very young, and most of you are not parents. Let me tell you something. There is not a parent in the world who would not smash that button so hard their hand bled. You are not going to get these people to stay poor. You're not even going to get them to not want to be richer. And so... I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is only one thing we can do in this country to stop climate change. And that is to make scientific and technological breakthroughs that will create the clean energy that is not only clean, but also cheap. And we on this side of the house are not on this side of the house because we do not wish to improve the world. We sit on this side of the house because we know that the way to improve the world is to work, is to create It is to build.
0: Welcome to our third video in our energy policy series. The subtext of this video is for us to underscore and emphasize that the stakes of getting energy policy are very high because we are in the midst of a global economic war. One of our favorite contributors on energy policy, Doomburg, which uh, is a collection of uh, ex-energy executives and consultants uh, that have moved into writing and doing podcasts and uh, and uh, making some uh, video log appearances, uh, they like to say that energy is life, and of course this underscores the fact that um, all of our uh, all of our uh, things that we consume in order to give us life in this world and to make our life meaningful requires energy. And particularly energy, uh, is used in literally in the production of everything. We would use energy from heating our homes to making our television sets to uh, keeping our food cool to for transportation, for building. Uh, and so oil is the master, um, commodity, if you will, that goes into the production of everything and uh, uh we showed you in a previous video uh the importance in uh, more broadly of hydrocarbon energy particularly we put up a visualization on germany which showed that uh, 27 billion dollars of cheap uh pipeline gas uh coming fr- uh, through the nord stream uh pipeline system uh, uh to germany uh supported half of the german economy about 2 trillion dollars worth of the german economy so our agenda we want to point out that in our view we're entering a new uh uh cold war we want to ask ourselves what is the goal of energy policy uh we want to point out the importance of the uh investment in uh uh in future energy technologies to help uh, uh relaxed constraints on the uh on our uh, energy side and we want to discuss the monetary aspects of energy policy so to begin with um we had 2022 was a signature uh year uh where we had a lot of uh, unusual things happening um uh, but it came in the wake of of course two years of uh, the world being uh, uh, responding to a global pandemic, which themselves were uh, unique events. But uh, one of them that didn't perhaps get as much attention as it should have was the destruction of the uh, Nord 1 and Nord uh, 2 pipelines. Nord 2 was a symbol of uh, post-Cold War globalization, where two blocks of global power, formula former communist states versus capitalist states could finally reconcile the uh destruction of that pipeline symbolizes the end of uh post cold War peace and economic integration and so we're, we're basically Europe and Russia are getting a, a a divorce uh with respect to globalization the global model of the wet of the West is that we own intellectual property. We provide services and we are financialized here and we consume cheap goods. At, and, and the global South then provides us with uh, the, the steady supply of those uh, cheap goods. Now, the global South wants a new deal. We're going to give you some excerpts from uh, the Vladimir Putin has given on his belief uh, that the world should be transitioning to a multipolar world away from a, a US uh, a western hege- uh, western dominated uh, hegemony where US is at uh, a, lead- a unipolar uh, leadership role this is a quote from a, a speech that Putin gave in Moscow on October 20 uh, 22 the conflict potential in the world as a whole as well as at the regional level, remains high. New risks and challenges for collective security are emerging. This is a consequence of a sharp aggravation of the global geopolitical confrontation. Literally before our eyes, the world is changing and indeed becoming multipolar. Additionally, in a speech that Putin made at the BRICS summit in September 2022, he said the following, it's important to maintain and boost mutually respective, constructive, and effective cooperation globally, as well as to strengthen the emerging multipolar world order that consists of independent centers of economic growth and political influence, which certainly includes the BRICS. Putin is asserting in this quote that uh, the world is uh, governed by the Washington consensus and democracy uh should be replaced by uh, a world that is where each country has more autonomy to pursue what it views as its own independent uh, growth path. As a result, what we're seeing is that the world is bifurcating into a BRICS versus Global North and OECD, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Turks are joining the BRICS and the economic bloc is expanding and we can look uh, no further to the difference in the way that Saudi Arabia received uh, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh where the father uh, uh went out to uh, MBS's father went out to meet uh Xi at the airport and uh whereas uh Biden received a, a perfunctory uh and and somewhat lackadaisical fist pump from uh, MBS. Drawing this back to energy security, the uh, what we're seeing now is a bifurcation uh, in in terms of economic blocks in the world. Now, in order to preserve our standard of living, we uh, can no longer rely on the global supply of chain of goods and energy the way that we uh, were previously doing. So, again, um, food and shelter are the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for the human uh, experience. And uh, energy plays a crucial role in the production of both. And and we have the uh, conundrum here in the West that we consume 45 million barrels of oil a day while we only produce 30 million barrels a day. If our goals are ultimately to reindustrialize our economies and decouple from our dependency on China and the global South, then we must uh, pursue a policy of having energy energy security uh, in the West. Uh, this fact, of course, has become increasingly uh, noted in both uh, uh, private and public uh, sector thought pieces over the over the past year. And uh, and there's become an increasing recognition uh, in uh, uh, in various forms of media that uh, we're at a transition point. And so we're going to cite a couple and quote a couple of examples. So the first example I'd like to quote uh, is from Zoltan Pozar. He is a top macro analyst, a former uh, Federal Reserve uh, Treasury official who now works for Credit Suisse on uh, January 6th of this year, he wrote an article titled, War and Peace. And I'm going to give you a quote from uh, that article. In 2022, uh, Pippa Malgren became my source of macro stimulus. Her meme that World War III has already started, but it's different from traditional world wars. It is a hot war in cold places, and a cold war in hot places, inspired me to write four war dispatches last year, war and interest rates, war and industrial policy, war and commodity encumbrance, and finally war and currency statecraft. In these identified six fronts, uh, meaning hot wars in macro land, a cold place where great powers were going at it in 2022 the G7's financial blockade of Russia, Russia's energy blockade of the EU, the U.S.'s technological blockade of China, China's naval blockade of Taiwan, the U.S.'s blockade of, EV, of EU's EV sector with the Inflation Reduction Act, and China's pincer movement around all of OPEC+, plus with the growing trend of invoicing oil and gas sales in Renumbi. Those were six geopolitical events in one single year. That is a geopolitical curveball to deal with every two months. So Zoltan is saying that there's a lot of um, transitioning going on in the global macrosphere, and it's around essentially a, 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 a war that has started between the the uh, West and the global South. Uh, now, uh, the second... Uh, uh, quote I'd like to uh, deliver today is from uh, Ted Norhaus, writing for Foreign Policy uh, on June 5th uh, of last year. <clears throat> the article is titled, Russia's War is the End of Climate Policy as We Know It. And what I'm citing here are the last two paragraphs of the article. If recent months have demonstrated anything, It is that war, insecurity, and economic crisis are merciless teachers. Climate advocates and their political allies have often engaged in the policy equivalent of smoking one's own supply. They have confused the subsidy-driven growth of renewable energy with evidence that the world is ready to rapidly transition off fossil fuels. Hence, they discourage the production of oil and gas wherever they could, and chronically underinvested in other uh, sources of clean energy, such as nuclear power. But while there has been technological progress, the global economy is still very f- far away from fully replacing fossil fuels. The confluence of war in Europe with uh, a global energy security crisis reminds us that the West is not so different from the rest of the world, for better or worse, energy development and security remain the coin of the realm. Any global strategy to build a bulwark against ethno-nationalist authoritarianism, achieve economic stability, and transition toward a low-carbon future will need to accommodate itself to that reality. We've underestimated uh, the need that we have for uh, traditional sources of energy overestimated the speed and ability of uh, renewable energy to replace those traditional sources. And if we're going to um, uh, fight against authoritarian uh, leadership all over the world, then we are going to, of course, have to uh, develop our own supply of uh, traditional energy sources, including nuclear, to be able to... Uh, um, uh, develop uh, low cost energy and provide a f- foundation for our own uh, economic future as we are, uh, in effect, deglobalizing. So, what are the pillars of e- an energy policy that we would need to have in the West? Well, of course, coming back to the fact that energy is life and foundational to uh, our economic well being is a uh, cheap energy sources to provide us with food and shelter, uh, then we need to have energy security at the heart of any kind of economic security plan that we will have going forward. Energy security needs to be more than just energy security for ourselves, but those of us who can provide more energy security for our allies who don't necessarily have the same energy resources, we need to do so. So we need to make sure that we're doing our part as good neighbors and partners to be able to help provide energy security to our allies. Of course, we have to balance that energy security with climate risks. One is a longer-term problem and one is an immediate problem. If we don't deal with energy security... What we're going to see happening is we will have a dramatic rise in energy costs and inflation in our societies, and that will be politically destabilizing, and then the climate agenda will get completely thrown out the window because of a populist backlash. So we need to find a balance that allows us to, to address both those issues with the climate risk issue uh, being a longer term transition. And as part of addressing that longer-term transition, we need to invest in future technologies that are going to uh, address both of those issues, hopefully in one way or another, both the energy scarcity and the climate risks. Energy security is at uh, the forefront of national security. Um, There's a... Uh, a a person who uh, named Luke Grohman who Michael and I follow quite a bit of his um, videos uh, that he does on YouTube. And he likes to say that uh, energy is nature's discount rate. Okay.
2: Densi- Density is a great way of framing it. Right. And, and ultimately uh, you've seen me probably say on Twitter before and in interviews that energy is the master resource. Right. Mm-hmm. So, we're watching this real time in Europe which is I think I think Zoltan Pozar said the other day that that 2 trillion dollars in German value added is dependent on 20 billion in Russian gas. And so if you really that 20 billion in Russian gas in that example is just nature's discount rate, right? The Fed can say hey we're going to lower rates or the ECB can lower it. Nature doesn't give a shit. Like the 20, like yeah. you know, if the gas is going up in price, the discount rate of all assets, or excuse me, the discount rate on all assets is going up if the cost of energy goes up. And as that happens, the value of assets comes down. And the problem is, if we are an equity based society, in other words, we didn't have all this debt, it was all equity based, uh it wouldn't be a big deal. People write down their equity and we move on. It is what it is. But the challenge is in a system that is a debt-backed system debt-backed currency is when you start writing down the value of assets that's you're writing down the value of collateral against an extremely high debt load you quickly get upside down it has these broad-ranging macro implications that um are to put it mildly problematic
0: and so if you think about it because we uh, use energy in the production of everything that we ma- uh, that gives us life, then uh, the cost of that energy effectively becomes our opportunity cost to society of providing those things. It's it's our discount rate, the same way that an interest rate uh, represents uh, the discount rate or the the cost of borrowing uh, and producing uh, uh, a boring debt. Energy, of course, is a main input into the production of manufactured goods, and uh, as we are looking at transitioning towards producing more and more stuff uh, here in the West to get away from our reliance on Russia and China, that means that energy costs are going to drive the cost of everything that we produce. Now, we've got another problem that we've gone through in the west we have a very high level of an indebtedness in western economies the us has over 120% debt to gdp canada has over 130% debt to gdp uh europe similarly has in large indebtedness issues and so if we end up uh getting a uh having an energy crisis where energy prices spike and create what we would call a cost push inflation cycle that uh, those energy uh, prices are going to uh, potentially trigger uh, a debt crisis for us where the central bank won't be able to get inflation under control and, and because inflation is rising then we're going to end up with having uh High inflation and and uh, we'll have what in effect, especially this is true if you're an energy importer like the u k uh, Germany uh, or uh, Japan or Korea, you could end up with what we would call a, a traditional balance of payments crisis because energy because you need to consume it and as it gets more expensive both in uh, as a result of a higher u s dollar. Or as a result of an energy shortage, uh, because we're cut off from large energy producers in the world, this is going to, uh, this just is like adding uh, a, a, another pound of debt because you have this energy deficit that you need to make up to maintain your economy every year. Now, of course, Canada is uh, an, uh, one of the top 10 exporters of uh, oil in the world and so from the canadian perspective uh, we know we're a, we have a large geographic size country with only 40 million people and we produce lots of food and lots of energy so you might say well there's no problem and then of course also the united states itself has become a net exporter of uh, energy in the last few years due to uh, the growth of shale over time uh well the problem is of course fundamentally is not just that Canada and the United States are okay because we're basically net exporters or self sufficient on energy the problem is is that we're part of a a group of western allies that includes uh South Korea uh Japan the European Union these are our, our allies uh that um uh you know, part of our NATO system uh that um that are net energy importers. And so when we get back to this uh, concept once again that uh, the West uh, consumes 45 million barrels of oil a day uh, uh, but uh, produces only 30, uh, those uh, members of the Western alliance that can produce more energy uh, have a debt, uh, a political debt, to do their best to produce that energy for uh, the sake of the alliance to be able to help supply stable energy for uh, for our allies. Otherwise, of course, we can't be guaranteed that they're going to remain allies. They may uh, push themselves towards becoming more neutral or even move over toward the global south if we don't help them uh, supply their basic uh, energy commitments. And so we can see that historically, if we look at the the uh, US foreign policy for much of the last uh, 30 40 years especially since the establishment of the petrodollar as we talked about in the early 70s when the United States went off the gold standard keeping uh, the US dollar relatively stable in terms of uh, how many barrels of oil it can can uh, provide has been a a major foreign policy goal of the United States and, uh, if we don't continue to do so, what we can expect is that, uh, the, uh, we could, we could see the, the, the collapse of the global monetary system as we know it, because, uh, you might see European countries have to go to Russia and say, okay, let's enter into a bilateral arrangement. We're going to tr- stop trading in US dollar. I'll give you pound and, uh, I'll buy your, I'll give you rubles for, for your oil and uh we could see the whole um western order uh petrodollar system collapse uh on itself if we don't uh uh move towards supporting it our deputy prime minister Krista friedland uh has discussed uh, the the fact that uh we are now uh, forging uh, new trade alliances uh with our uh with our uh uh, uh, friendly uh, neighbors uh, where we're going to uh, this concept now that's come out in the last year is what's called friend shoring. We're going to be transitioning our supply chain away from autocracies towards democracies that are part of our alliance.
1: Today, I want to lay out the new economic path that the world's democracies should chart together. The past 33 years were guided by an idealism that was both high-minded And for the countries of the transatlantic alliance, supremely comfortable. We were fat and happy. The curse of oil is real, and so is the dependence of many of the world's democracies on the world's petro-tyrants. Friendshoring can both defend liberal democracy and help to preserve the planet if one of our objectives is to speed up the green transition.
0: Well, this is a pipe dream if we don't do our part to supply those members of the alliance with a a guaranteed uh, stable energy supply. And that uh, specifically, of course, uh, in our case would mean that we have to supply Japan, South Korea, and uh, the European Union with uh, cheap energy so they can maintain their prosperity and be a cost-effective place for us uh, to, uh, French shore to transition our production away from, uh, well, China specifically, of course, in the main, but also, uh, from, uh, other countries as well. So what should the West do now? Well, we have to recognize that there are limitations, uh, of, uh, currently of, uh, what we would call net zero or, or environmentally, uh, carbon free, t- uh, technologies. Um because we can't replace everything with renewable energy or net zero energy, uh, new sources of energy, we're going to have to find cost-effective, reliable hydrocarbon energy that will provide a stopgap for us because the transition to clean energy solutions is not going to happen in five years, ten years. It's going to be decades in the making and of course uh, to have that transition happen we're going to have to look at uh, various um, technology improvements uh, that uh, what we might call moonshot technology improvements that would allow us uh, innovations that would allow us to transition away from hydrocarbon energy so we have to we have to do a, a full court press for investing in new technologies and supporting new technologies that over time will be able to uh, um, uh, supplant hydrocarbon energy. But we're not in a world where we can make that transition realistically now uh, in uh, five or ten years. So we've identified the following uh, limitations in previous videos of uh, a transition to electrification and uh, clean energy technologies. Right now we have uh, inadequacy of our uh, grid structure, so uh, our grid structure is antiquated, and because uh, wind uh, speeds can vary, you either then ha- and and uh, the electricity system needs to be balanced on a moment by moment basis. You have only a certain amount of. Uh, electricity that can move through your transmission wires. so you can either build that for over capacity to say have reached the maximum that oil that uh, uh, wind and solar could produce or you're going to have to do something called curtailment. You're going to have to when uh, when there's more wind and solar energy uh, being produced than the transmission capacity that you built ha- uh, has, then the uh, system operator would essentially take uh, some of that power, some of that generation off the system and curtail it. We would have to double uh, the uh, capacity of the electricity grid. And the transmission grid is extremely expensive. Uh, nobody wants transmission wires in their backyard. Uh, you need, because... Uh, Renewable resources are often in remote locations. You would ideally need to have some high voltage uh, electricity uh, being built. And, uh, and the grid system is old. Secondly, there's a shortage of uh, clean energy minerals. We talked about this in a previous video. We have a complete lack of rare minerals that are needed for the production of electric vehicles, and there's about ten of them, uh, and uh, so we've got copper, graphite, nickel, silicon, zinc, chromium, magnesium, lithium, and molybdenum. Uh, the existing uh, stock that we have versus our estimate of 2030, uh, we need to either a, a doubling or at, uh, as much as 17 times in terms of uh, graphite uh, increase in production. And uh, one could argue, well, prices will save us and production will uh, t- will increases will happen rapidly. Well, there's never been a case in a decade that uh, production has increased in any mineral more than 100% in the space of a decade. So if we if we continue to have an ever increasing uh, demand for energy as our economy grows, then we're going to the the and we can't fill it with clean tech right now. Uh, then uh, we're going to have to fill in the gap using uh, traditional energy sources. And that brings us now. Of course, we could talk about the question of nuclear. Uh, but nuclear itself is a problem. Uh, Bill Gates is funded, and I'm going to mention this, uh, talk about this uh, as a point in a few minutes. But uh, the potential to do small uh, nuclear reactors, there was going to be one that was going to be done in in um, uh, Wyoming, and that's been delayed for uh, two years because. Russia actually uh, produces 50% of the nuclear rods that get processed in the world. So even on nuclear, which Michael and I are uh, both um, extremely supportive of the the broader development of nuclear, right now, again, Russia is a choke point for that. So, uh, again, it would be something that we would potentially, with our nuclear resources in Canada we would uh, want to uh, develop uh, perhaps with our Canadian uh, uranium a more processing uh, capability here in Canada. But uh, if we can't do nuclear because those timelines are longer and we need something uh, to provide a quicker stopgap and prevent an energy crisis, then uh, we've got essentially in the West uh, three options that are available to us in terms of expanding hydrocarbons. So we can expand uh, hydrocarbons uh, through Canada, the United States, or uh, Venezuela. Now, uh, if we look at the U.S., uh, what we've seen is, and we've talked about uh, this before, that there was a revolution in uh, hydraulic fracturing technology in the shale industry that allowed the U.S. to access uh uh, uh, light oil that was trapped uh, within uh, rock formations and uh, in those three basins uh, that uh, two are in Texas, uh, one in East Texas, Eagle Ford, one in West Texas, Permian, and then the North Dakota uh, basin called the Bakken. Uh, that production, uh, there are uh, quite a bit of reserves in those areas and uh, Zoltan Pozar who i referenced earlier the uh, macro analyst for credit suisse he suggested that the us needs to think about nationalizing its shale industry uh, uh in order to uh, pivot back towards having a, a greater uh us uh, oil production and um uh, but as we've noted uh and shown you in previous graphs it looks like the U.S. shale has uh, reached its past uh, productivity peak. Now in Canada, we, if we count our uh, reserves of what we call unconventional reserves, which are those types of reserves that are held in the oil sands, we have the world's second largest uh, known reserves. And, um, but we've had a, a world where, um, political policies have impeded the development of our energy resources in Alberta we've had uh, political uh, pressures uh, that uh, particularly that have provided uh, prevented us from building uh, cheap oil transportation infrastructure so for example um the Kinder uh, Morgan Trans Mountain pipeline which was eventually sold by Kinder Morgan to the federal government. It was originally budgeted at $4.5 billion, but now is uh, looks like it's going to come in at a cost of uh, $19 billion. So we've had massive cost overruns. Now, Venezuelan production uh, has fallen from about 3.5 million barrels a day uh, in 2014 to under a million barrels a day of uh, export production. And um, basically, you've had a humanitarian disaster in uh, Venezuela. I think one time around 2017, there was a food starv- uh, starvation in Venezuela, and the average Venezuelan lost 20 pounds in, in a, a year because of the level of poverty that, that happened the biden administration is looking uh through uh, starting out with chevron uh to uh, reach out uh to venezuela and restarting production but that's a process that's going to take quite a bit of time uh to uh, get uh, going uh Venezuela because of the lack of taking care of its uh oil fields they've uh currently uh, uh, they've got an environmental disaster in terms of uh the condition of their oil fields and and uh, so they're not the best source uh, of energy Canada would still be I think the the best bet for uh, increasing uh, oil production in the West uh, if we could uh, get our uh, coordination uh, going so uh, what then should uh, the West do with respect to energy policy um, well, the only production that can reliably scale without major political unrest is Canada. And of course we, uh as in Canada, we are heavily influenced by what the United States wants because we are a strong ally of the United States and we benefit greatly from being next to the United States. So we tend to uh, accommodate their wishes. So, if the uh, U.S. Ad, uh, administration would want to have an increase in production, it's likely that we would um, uh, uh, do that to accommodate our uh, Western allies. So if we were going to gonna do something like that, how might we do it in Canada? We would need uh, investment tax credits for oil production. This was done by Kretchen uh, and Martin in the 1990s. We would have to subsidize oil infrastructure uh, pipelines, and if we built an upgrader an upgrader would allow us to ref uh, do some refining closer to the uh, uh, closer to the uh, oil sands uh, production sites mass uh, funding for carbon capture and storage so that would help us uh, uh, be able to uh, deal with the, the climate issues around increased carbon production. Some of that's already happening. Uh, and uh, the prime minister is uh, asking the Alberta government to uh, use some of the money from its um, budget surplus that it has now that energy prices are high, and also uh, become a partner in investing in carbon capture and storage. And uh, in terms of uh, climate change strategies, uh, it's clear that we're going to blow past our 2050 uh, uh, targets for CO2. And since that's going to happen, because we're not willing to make the uh, consumption cuts that would be required to reduce CO2 as, uh, as part of the population, then uh, what we need to do is then focus on uh, you know mitigation strategies for dealing with higher temperatures that are coming. So we would uh, we should be installing air conditioners. Uh, we should do things like stop building on floodplains because most of the costs of climate change to us right now are that we are uh, we continue to build on uh, floodplains. We should build uh, levees. So we should do things to um, uh, start to prepare for the fact that uh, uh, for the things that are coming in climate change uh, and uh, those are more realistic than uh, the r- restrictive demand that we would need uh, to be able to constrain our CO2. In the West, for instance, we would need uh, to uh, not do a short-haul flight more than once every three years. This has been uh, in a report issued by the IPCC and not do a long-haul flight more than once uh, every eight years. So that kind of uh, consumption restriction uh, is not realistic in terms of us being able to reduce our CO2 as well, of course, uh, if we are effectively engaging in war with Russia and China uh, and we're not going to be willing to pay for India to, uh, in terms of its CO2 reduction, any reductions we do here are not likely to amount to much uh, in, on a practical point. So our monies would be better uh, spent in terms of uh, addressing mitigation strategies. So, we're on our way, uh, uh, to overshooting our 1.5, uh, Celsius climate change commitment. And, uh, what we need to think about in terms of being able to address that in the future, since the political will for, uh, demand constraint is not likely there in democracies, is to come up with a technological breakthrough. So we should be doing uh, massive uh, financial commitment into research and development for clean technology that would allow us uh, to transition away from uh, hydrocarbons uh, cost effectively you know we've noted that there is some uh, that while uh, co2 production in the world is still going up we're still consuming more coal we are uh, seeing some increase in investment in clean tech. That's a positive. Some of the solutions that may come in the future in terms of these big technological breakthroughs are, for example, a molten salt battery technology, fusion, uh, direct air carbon capture, solid state lithium ion batteries, and these uh, small self-contained nuclear reactors. Uh, These are examples of technologies that we we could have in the future that could help us dramatically reduce our uh, dependence on hydrocarbons, but we're not there yet. Uh, There are some things to become hopeful about. Uh, The US has become the world's largest exporter of LNG. Uh, In Canada, here in Alberta, we've made uh, a major oil discovery in the Clearwater area and it's the cheapest uh place for producing new oil in uh, North America so that's a positive the united states last year uh passed something called the inflation reduction act which was uh, targeted at helping the us economy develop and uh, transition uh, towards cleaner energy and there's uh billion set aside for upgrading the U.S. uh, uh, electricity grid. Now, there's a monetary aspect of energy that we need to uh, consider. And uh, again, there was an important visit by China's uh, Xi Jinping uh, last year to Saudi Arabia. And they came uh, and had up with a comprehensive uh, new trade agreement. And uh, the elements of that trade agreement include that they're going to cooperate on uh, clean tech manufacturing. There's going to be infrastructure investment in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is going to build out a petrochemical complex in China, and they are going to uh, settle their trade balances in the renumbi or the Chinese currency renumbi or huan. The, this part about the settlement of the trade balance in Renumbi isn't well understood in the West. Uh, basically China is a huge uh, net energy importer and therefore, uh, it has, it needs US dollars and it wants to get away from its reliance on US dollars. And so it wants to undermine the petrodollar uh, system. And so, uh, what we're seeing is, Countries that uh, want to uh, move away from reliance on the U.S. dollar uh, are looking at ways of transacting in their own currency, and China is really paving the way for this. China started to buy energy from Russia in uh, Renumbi, and Saudi Arabia will probably do the same. And uh, they are going to be able to settle Uh, they're looking at being able to settle uh, the uh, trade uh, imbalances that they may have uh, in gold, and that will be off the Shanghai Exchange in the next few years. And that's going to be the topic of our uh, uh, next video, is the role of uh, gold coming back as a monetary uh, asset. I want to close out our video by uh, using a quote from Tolstoy, that Zoltan Pozar cited in his uh, War and Peace article. Uh, It's worth repeating here, I think, because it represents the modern dilemma we're facing as a society. The most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing uh, cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that... He all, he knows already without a shadow of a doubt what is laid before him. We've been very used to in the West, cheap energy. Uh, we have been very used to declining, uh, energy costs for the last 20 years. And like anything else that, uh, happens, uh, over a period of time, we begin to feel like we have an entitlement towards it. Uh, and we don't want to acknowledge that the world may be transitioning and that era may be coming to an end. Uh, but I want to uh, look you in the eye now or tell you in all seriousness, we're at uh, effectively entered into uh, a war, the West with the global South. And the era of cheap energy is over. And we need to accept that reality and become more self-reliant in the West We need to uh, have adult conversations about energy policy uh, that includes hydrocarbons and a realistic timeline uh, to transition away from them. Our upcoming uh, videos are going to be uh, talking about gold as a monetary asset uh, uh, coming back and uh, South Korea as potentially a field for the next proxy war. So those are the videos that we're going to be making in the future. Bye for now, uh, Janusians. I hope this finds you well, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Uh, Please like this video and share it with uh, all those uh, who you think could uh, find it useful. Take care.